That sound you're hearing, that's the sound of fierce, freezing gale force winds in minus 30 degrees on the world's second highest mountain, a mountain in the Karakoram mountain range that straddles China and Pakistan. And when there's not a gale, there's a depth to the silence, without birds, without people, with so little life that's like nowhere else. I'm Basha Cummings, and it's here that I want to take you for this week's Slow Newscast. With the help of an award-winning journalist called Simon Osborne, I'm going to tell you the story of what happened on K2 this winter, where the forces of commerce and ego and influencer culture all collided and ended in triumph and in tragedy. So there are 14 mountains in the world taller than 8,000 metres, all in the Himalayan and Karakoram ranges. By 1964, all of the 8,000ers, as they're known, had been climbed in summer. Then, in 1980, people started trying to climb them in winter. And soon, it was only K2 left to climb, the only 8,000er left to be summited in the winter months after decades of failed attempts. Because K2 is a deadly mountain, it's punishingly steep, a monster of ice and rock punching into the death zone where the air is so thin that just being there is slowly killing you. It's so much harder to climb than Everest, partly because it's so technical, so steep, so exposed to storms, and partly because it's so remote, so far from rescue teams. In 1953, after an American expedition tried to summit it, a climber called George Bell told reporters, it's a savage mountain that tries to kill you. And the name stuck. For years, commercial expeditions hadn't dared go near the savage mountain in winter since so many people had died in the attempt to scale it. Until now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In 2020, a company called Seven Summit Treks announced that it would be taking people up for a winter attempt. And when it was announced, many of the world's most respected voices in mountaineering warned against it. They said that this was a folly that would end in death. And that's when Simon took notice too, when it was announced on social media. And he's followed the story ever since. And he's going to help me tell it. So really, we need to go back to January and to base camp. And first, I need to introduce you to a mountaineering star, a man called Nirmal Purja, but everyone calls him Nims. You've got to be brutal honest. And, you know, you're that very decision of being brave and, and keep climbing, keep pushing that extra further can make you successful. But that very decision of being brave and keep pushing could literally kill you if you haven't been honest to yourself 100% in terms of being true to your ability. Nims is a former Gurkha and British Special Forces soldier and in 2019 he became a bit of a sensation in the mountaineering world after he climbed all 14 of those mountains above 8,000 metres in less than six months which was a full seven years faster than the previous record. And he's just one of the big names who arrived on K2 this winter. And look, this guy's a big deal. He's part of this new cohort of mountaineers that have a really strong digital presence. He's got almost 400,000 followers on Instagram. 
He's got this impressive team around him, big name sponsors like Red Bull and Braemont, the luxury watch brand. His book, which is called Beyond Possible, is a bestseller. He's handsome and he's an unbelievably strong and gifted athlete. The expedition began a bit before Christmas. Nims joined more than 50 other climbers and Sherpas who assembled at base camp, which was this ramshackle collection of tents more than a week's trek from the nearest town. And Nims's expedition was one of three small crack teams of climbers. There was his group of six people, all Nepalese. There was another all Nepalese group of three. And those two teams ended up working together for the summit push. And then there was an American climber called Colin O'Brady and his climbing partner and two Sherpas. Colin's team were climbing under the Seven Summit Treks Umbrella Expedition, which was really made up of smaller groups and individuals all going for the summit. Some were professional mountaineers, others were influencer adventurers, and others were serious amateur enthusiasts. And at base camp, where they were all holed up together, they shared their experience on Instagram under the hashtag K2Winter. And it was there, from base camp, that Nims and his team spotted a window of good weather after days of preparation. They went for it. It was really emotional, to be honest. You know, when you step forward and something is literally there and everybody at the same point, you know, walking, you know, in, in that straight line. Yeah, I didn't really... You know, the, the, the scenic view was not, not the concern. I think nobody <laughs> nobody took into what it looks like or, or, or you know, was, was the view wasn't the concern. I think it was the emotional journey, the emotional success, you know. And I think I will never have that experience. I've been in so many expeditions, so many expeditions, but I have never been happy in my life as this one. And they did it. That's Nims, 10 metres away from the K2 summit, 10 metres away from history, singing the Nepalese national anthem with his fellow climbers. For the country of Sherpas, who had, for a century, been overshadowed by the Western climbers that they supported, this was a moment of national reclamation. The news made front pages in Britain and beyond, and back in Nepal, the country just went crazy. But, and listen, this is a big but... This is just a part of the story of K2 this winter. Really, it's just the beginning of the story. Here's Simon. Very quickly, this triumph gave way to tragedy. It started only hours later, when a Spanish climber called Sergei Mingotti was climbing much lower down the mountain and fell to his death. But worse than this was to come. We know that the history books only remember the first, but the expectation from big sponsors, from social media is a different story. And the climbers still at base camp didn't just pack up and go home because K2 in winter had been done. They all had their own motivations for being there and for trying to get to the summit. So although K2 is only 238 metres shorter than Everest, and imagine that's about 50 floors of a skyscraper, it dwarfs it as a technical challenge, even at the best time of year. From base camp, K2 looks like a mountain should. It's this massive pyramid of rock, ice and snow. It's unrelentingly steep and horribly exposed to fierce storms, there are massive avalanches and crevasses and tumbling blocks of ice the size of houses. In winter, thick ice covers much of the rock. Every step is really difficult. And if you do slip or make a simple mistake with the ropes, you're probably not going to stop until you hit the glacier at the foot of the mountain. Almost 100 people have died trying to climb K2. Before this winter, there was one death for every 5.5 successful summit pushes 
if you compare that to Everest, it's more like one death for 33 successful summit pushes there. And of course, we know that since the 1990s, all of this is happening while Everest is becoming a massive industry. If you've got a spare 20 grand or more and a bit of experience on tough mountains, you too can join the long lines of CEOs and adventurer influencers and climb Everest yourself. Hundreds of tourists come to Everest Base Camp each year, drawn by the challenge of conquering the world's highest mountain. But British mountaineers... Since the 90s, mountaineering has undergone this revolution. And we know now about the dangers that this commercialization can bring. We do begin with the single worst tragedy ever on Mount Everest. That ferocious... But if you thought mass death and queues on big mountains would put people off, you'd be wrong. In a smaller way, K2 had become a product as well attracting big commercial expeditions in the summer months. But no company had dared to establish a big base camp in the winter months. The risks were just too high. But that changed this year when Seven Summit Treks, a company run by two Nepali mountaineers, offered to take the willing. Packages started at around £20,000. Not many of the 22 clients that Seven Summit Treks brought to the mountain had any experience climbing either K2 in the summer or any 8,000-metre peak in winter. And that's partly why other guides and mountaineers started to get really worried. But Arnold Koster, a Dutch mountaineer who helped run the expedition for Seven Summit Treks from base camp, later tried to explain that they weren't offering to guide inexperienced people up the mountain. He said they were only supplying infrastructure and logistics, things like tents and food, oxygen bottles, fixed ropes and Sherpas. Uh, I also don't see us as a guiding company or something. We are, uh, we supply logistics. So, so what I said before, people pay for certain package and, and they add services to their needs. Uh, we're not telling anybody we're going to bring them to the summit. They know they have to climb to the summit themselves. Of course, the price uh, for, for, for the Westerner to climb K2 in the winter uh, is for maybe some of the people very, very uh, tempting. If you climb K2 in winter, any of my men, of the members would have found a sponsorship easy for their next project. They will probably make some money out of it. And of course, the fame they would get. I, I think that was the temptation for, for the Western people. It's now late in January and the Nepali team is being celebrated back in Kathmandu. Back at base camp, this mixed group of around 50 climbers and Sherpas were now waiting for their own moment to try to summit. For different reasons, they hadn't been in a position to go for it in the weather window the Nepali team had jumped through. Some weren't ready or hadn't acclimatised, others had seen less favourable forecasts. Now, I've spoken to many of the climbers who were on K2 and as you can imagine, it's a fraught business. Many of them had just witnessed terrible things. Many didn't want to talk at all. And I should say that there was a lot of camaraderie and close friendship in base camp. Instagram was full of it when storms confined everyone to their tents for two weeks after the Nepalese team had gone home. But it's also clear from the conversations I did have that divides were starting to form. The Nepali triumph, which included climbers from two expeditions plus a Sherpa who had joined them from the Seven Summit Treks team, had shown the power of working together. But there was little cohesion among the groups and individuals who remained. Three climbers are really key to this story. The first is a Pakistani climber called Ali Sadpara. We are unity. We are strong here, you know. This is important things in the mountaineering. But uh, inshallah, we are do it. Ali is a 45-year-old national hero. He's the only Pakistani person to have climbed all eight of the world's 14 highest mountains. And he made the first ever winter ascent of the world's ninth highest peak, Nanga Parbat. He was born in the village in one of the river valleys in Pakistan's extreme north. His family were farmers, but Ali saw the Westerners coming to climb the mountains around him and he decided, yeah, he could do that too. This is my hard work. <laughs> and uh, I'm happy, but my job is, you know, very dangerous, very technical. But uh, I, I love mountains. I love mountainers. 
There's a really wonderful film of Ali on YouTube that I found. He's beaming, he's softly spoken, he's mucking around in the snow, rolling around, singing, listing off his accomplishments to camera. Ali had summited K2 before, but in summer, and so had his son, Sajid, who was with him this winter on K2. In fact, in the summer of 2019, Sajid became the youngest person to summit K2. So they were together, a father and son team. And there was another really important climber at base camp too, a 35-year-old American adventurer called Colin O'Brady. There it is, K2 in the background from base camp. Colin O'Brady is this clean-cut, supremely fit former triathlete, the son of hippies from Oregon. He's got 250,000 or more Instagram followers and this whole list of feats under his belt. O'Brady was on the mountain celebrating and spurred on by the Nepalese triumph. Stepping out into the unknown, I think for me, it, it actually taps into a deeper exploration of self for me. Some of my most valuable experiences have not been the, the external accomplishments of, say, my solo crossing of the landmass of Antarctica, which had never been done in that form before, etc. But what I take from that is actually what that allowed to open up inside of my own um, body, mind and soul, which is more of a personal exploration and journey, which I find to be tremendously um, interesting and valuable, find the edges of my own potential and Ali you know has a laundry list of achievements not not least of which is the first winter ascent of Nanga Parbat this guy has climbed arguably an as if not more dangerous mountain in Pakistan in the middle of winter and so you look to a guy like that and you think man he knows he knows better than me so we've got Colin who's looking up at K2 on his own sponsored climb which he's branded the impossible summit he's part of the bigger seven summit treks team Ali is there with a different kind of motivation and a very different pressure as Arnold Costa of Seven Summit Treks told me. I think for Ali it's a little bit different. I think Ali got a lot of pressure after that the Nepali summited. That's why he has been the best Pakistani climber couldn't summit. It was more for, for national pride for him I think. The weight of a whole country's expectations was on Ali to emulate what the Nepalese climbers had just done. But for Pakistan, home to K2, Ali was climbing with his son Sajid Ali and in support of John Snorri, a father of six from Iceland who tried to climb K2 in the winter before. This is where it gets even more complicated because these three guys are not part of the Seven Summit Treks team. But even within the Seven Summits team, there were individuals and pairs of climbers doing more or less their own thing. So it was this kind of strange mishmash on the mountain. Colin O'Brady, for example, was climbing with his partner and friend, Dr. John Kodrowski, and two Sherpas. So we've got this kind of cast of characters at base camp. The three-man team of the Sadparas and John Snorri, and then under the Seven Summits umbrella, multiple individuals and groups And then they're stuck in base camp for two weeks after the Nepali triumph in a storm, stuck in their tents, waiting for their own opportunity until suddenly, in the beginning of February, this small window of good weather opened up. K2 might just be climbable again, but conditions were still tough and tensions and chaos were about to really bubble over. Colin seized the moment and started to climb up the mountain and he made speedy progress. But just before Camp 1, one of the four main places where you can rest on the way up, his partner, Dr John, got a bad feeling. He told me this. I mean, it was 10 to 15 degrees colder and possibly 15 to 25 miles an hour more wind. So like a forecast showing like 25 to 35 mile per hour winds. And it's like, how is that even acceptable? And then the second reason was I just felt like as I'm going up, like those guys had made it and they had a great team and a great cohesive team. And kind of as, as I'm going up, I'm, I'm seeing people that was all, it was a free for all. Everybody was there for themselves. And that's just not a way to climb a mountain like that. But both Colin and Ali Sadpara separately were powering ahead. 
felt really strong. Um, just kind of got in my own space and my own flow, kind of focused on the challenge of the climbing. That climbing through there is, I guess, I would say the most technical of the entire route. It's called through the Black Pyramid. A lot of really steep and exposed rock and challenging, compl- complex climbing at that altitude through there. And without even being totally aware of it, I guess, I knew I was climbing by myself and alone, but I you know, thought maybe people were five, 10 minutes behind me, but it turned out that, you know, I ultimately was many hours, well, like about five hours ahead of the main group of other people climbing from Seven Summits track. The next day at about 5pm, with the sun setting and temperatures already reaching minus 30 degrees, Colin was one of the first to reach Camp 3, this snowy, rocky, fairly flat bit of ground, more than 7,000 metres up. It was going to be their final stop before the summit. And it's important to be clear that Camp 3 is not a campsite in the way you or I would think of one. It's just this really harsh, desolate ledge where mountaineers traditionally rest. Yep, perched here on the ledge that drops off uh, 2,000 feet on either side, but uh, it was beautiful. Just hope we don't get blown off this ledge. Usually, unfortunately, there's, you know, scraps of old tents or things that have been left behind. That might have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. It's hard to say, but like just old remnants. And it's obvious that, you know, at some point someone had a tent set up and it got broken and they didn't get carried down and then it got covered by snow and ice from the following year, etc. And Camp 3, when we did get there was effectively that again not i could see maybe the edges uh sticking out from the snow from you know a previous expedition's tent and then there was obviously one or a few couple flatter spots um that i'm assuming probably had been uh dug out or or stomped down or flattened out um by the nepalese team that had been there a couple uh weeks before and so we started setting up our tent on this you know semi flat or snow platform but i'm still you're still at you know i measure in feet but uh seven you know 24,000 feet or 74 or 7500 whatever that is in meters and it just drops off on either side, basically. It's like you can't walk very far without it, you know, pretty much significantly dropping off or there's crevasses in this area, et cetera. So it's not as if it's like this large, expansive space by any means. Colin and his Sherpa set up for a few hours of rest and to get ready. They needed to do things like melting snow for water, eating, changing their socks and generally gathering their strength. And reaching Camp 3 in itself is an accomplishment at the best of times. And how quickly you get there really matters. Arnold Costa, the guy helping to run the Seven Summits team, said that he'd made this clear to his clients. I gave some very clear cut-off times. So, so I told them uh, a certain time to reach Camp 1, a certain time to reach Camp 2, and a certain time to reach Camp 3. And I told them to stop if they cannot... Uh, uh, keep those timings up because from Camp 3 to the summit is quite far and the Nepalese they already took about 15 hours for a Westerner to do that in the same time would be quite difficult even on oxygen Meanwhile Colin already knew that the clock was against him after some confusion with the ropes he'd reached Camp 3 later than planned he knew it would take at least 15 hours to reach the summit from there over steep frozen rock and snow Worse still, as Dr John had feared, the weather forecasts were shifting. High winds were due to hit the summit earlier the next day, and so to make it up and down again in time, Colin calculated that he needed to leave the camp by 9pm. But over the next few hours, 20 more climbers and Sherpas arrived at this small frozen ledge in the dark, thousands of metres into the air. And for reasons we'll explore, there weren't enough tents for everyone. In some cases, latecomers had to beg to be let in. Crammed into four small tents, the climbers could barely move, never mind rest and prepare for a summit push. And they were a strange mix of characters, nationalities, experience levels, including some of the most accomplished climbers in the world. They included a former Northern Ireland policeman and mountaineer, Noel Hanna. Why take extra chances where there's a chance that you don't come back down or you go home with less fingers and toes? 
a Slovenian face surgeon called Tomas Rotar, who'd also tried to climb K2 the previous winter. We, we have been joking and said we are tourists, you know, all the rest are professionals. A Chilean architect and mountaineer called Juan Pablo Moore. He feels good, I think. Uh, he feels strong. And... That's his sister. And a wealthy Greek businessman, Antonios Sikaris. I say, please, allow to me inside, I will die. It's not possible to stay out of the tent. Up on that tiny ledge, 20 people were fumbling in the dark. The clock was ticking. Arnold Costa, who was on the radio at base camp through all of this, told me that four of the climbers at Camp 3 shouldn't have been there. They'd simply been climbing too slowly. Up there, as they all crammed into tiny tents, the situation became more desperate and tensions started to boil over. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Some clients of Seven Summits claimed that they'd expected to find tents stashed at Camp 3 by Sherpas ahead of time. That's how things normally work in these big expeditions. But the mountain had just been hit by storms and the chances of tents being buried or blown away were obvious to others, including Colin. I, I never expected that and I never heard anyone talk about that as a possibility until we were already in the bad circumstance that we are, which was with seven people inside of my tent and seven people inside of my other tent and all smashed in there. And they, people were starting to say that, but I was... I was obviously talked to everyone and I was on the radio and everything. And I never one time heard anybody say, like, it's not like I woke up that morning and said, oh, don't pack our, let's not pack our tent. It's fine. You know, there's other tents. Like I never in a million years would have considered that to be possible. According to Arnold Costa, there had been a miscommunication. Not all members, but a lot of members left Camp 2 quite late. And the Sherpas didn't have much time to pack tents from from camp two uh, uh, to camp three, so the Sherpas also didn't bring extra tents. Actually, even as a co-leader, I'm still not sure why nobody communicated about our tents uh, because everybody knew actually that those tents uh, would would uh, should be there were there for a while already. So the chances that something is lost are there. We knew that. So, so it's a miscommunication in combination with members leaving late and arriving very late. As you can imagine, emotions were running high. It's a, it's a it's a weird balance of emotions, I think, in that moment because, obviously, yes, I mean, frustrated, annoyed, afraid, both for my own safety at that point, and and of course the safety of others. All of those emotions, but it's also this weird thing because you're how do i say this if you're maybe frustrated with somebody's choices but as a human being at least for me with my code of ethics my my code of ethics doesn't say well they didn't bring a tent let them stand outside in the cold by themselves it's their own fault i'm gonna zip my tent door shut and not let them inside i mean we're at twenty-four thousand feet it's minus 50 degrees outside these people are arriving at night and all this really matters because huddled up there 
These guys were about to have to make life or death decisions. All 20 people currently at Camp 3 had gone that far because there was the prospect of this short window of good weather to make the final push. But they were now really behind schedule and those weather forecasts weren't looking any better. It was apparent to me that I needed to make the decision, whatever decision I was going to make, by, by at least by then. Originally, I'd wanted to leave if I was going to go for the summit around 9 p.m. and I could obviously bargain with myself an hour or two later. But, you know, I wasn't going to make a decision I was going to make at 3 o'clock in the morning because the winds the following afternoon were forecast to pick up. Um, so I made that decision around 10, 30, 11. And then, of course, called down to the radio to tell John, my client partner, and then had uh, a couple sat phone calls with my wife back home to let her know. So Colin had decided. In total, five climbers and their Sherpas, including Colin, decided it was just too dangerous to step out of their tents and head up. Instead, they would stay at Camp 3 until dawn and go back down. They abandoned. But Ali Sadpara, Pakistan's hero, his son, Sajid Ali and John Snorri, were still determined. In that moment, in that night, when those decisions were being made, the time I spent with Ali in my tent, there was mostly jovial kindness and laughter from him and basically anyone who I'm sure you've talked to who have ever told you about him that was his way that was his essence and he was no different that night than he was in all the rest of the time I, I knew him. Another guy Juan Pablo Moore the Chilean had been lucky his tent which he shared with one other climber Tamara Lunga an Italian was really really tiny and there was just no way anyone else could squeeze in. He was also feeling good, as his brother-in-law explained. He felt great, strong, and probably he was the only one who had a good night's sleep uh, that day in Camp 3 because he was alone with Tamara in his tent. So probably, amazingly, like, like we always discuss like what's good or bad. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, he was in great shape. He had a great night. If he had had a bad night, probably he hadn't. He wouldn't have uh, uh, taken the risk at all. But he had, and that's the bad luck of having, of having that great uh, rest. He was perfect, in perfect shape for going up. But Colin's gut had told him, get out of there. So my, my plan was, I'm going to lie here you know, try to sleep, but let's be honest, you're not going <laughs> to, given all the things going on, it's not like you're going to like have a deep sleep or something like that, but close my eyes at least for a second and wait until the sun comes up uh, to make, to make, to begin my descent. And so that's exactly what happened. And a sequence of things happened in the night. Like I said, those guys leaving, regulars breaking, people coming back, other people leaving, other people coming back. And, you know, I talked to various people throughout, through the tents as they return, like Tomas and Etc. And then the sun finally hit my tent probably around seven o'clock or something like that in the morning. That's when I said to myself, well, I want to try to descend as fast as I can, not, not recklessly, but as quickly as I can so that I do most of this descent in the daylight. I want to jump in here because this decision to go up or to come down was critical. We know that there were so many competing pressures boiling over at Camp 3. The weight of national expectation, the weight of big sponsorship deals, the expectation of thousands of followers on Instagram. This was all swirling together in the mix at 7,000 metres, in the hypoxic minds of people who had come so far already and had paid so much, had waited for so long to get to this point. Tomas Rota, the Slovenian surgeon, described it to Simon like this. It's like a venom in your in your veins, and you just have to go up. You just have to go up. And I still don't know why I turned back. By 2 a.m. that night, far later than the 9 p.m. cutoff that O'Brady had set for himself, seven climbers had made the decision to step out of the tents. And it's worth pointing out that climbers in this kind of expedition generally aren't climbing together because they're all going at different speeds. And so picture these men one by one throughout that period, leaving the tents alone in the dark with only their head torch to show them the way. For some of them, it was a decision that was to prove fatal. What happened to some of those climbers over the course of the next day is now the subject of much disagreement. Two of them turned back very quickly. They were just unable to endure the extreme cold. 
And so that left Ali and Sajid Sapara, John Snorri and Juan Pablo Moore in the summit push. There was also Tomas Rotar, the Slovenian surgeon. He left Camp 3 with a Sherpa, Temba, at 10pm and followed the fixed ropes the Nepalese teams had used two weeks earlier. At just under 8,000 metres, Thomas hit an unexpected crevasse. He said it was about two metres wide. He couldn't cross it, and so at that point he decided to turn back. We realised that we cannot cross that crevasse. At that point, also, uh, Timba suffered, uh, like, uh, I mean, he had, like, uh, oxygen malfunction, like uh, canister started to leak or something. And that was just additional reason for him that he said, I have to go down. He went down and I said, okay, I'll follow. He said, Thomas, we have to go down, otherwise you'll die. And uh, we turned around. And then just after a few meters, a few minutes of walking down, maybe 15, 20 minutes, I met Snorri. And I know it gets a bit complicated here. You've got people going in different directions, up and down the mountain in the dark. But when Thomas Rotor bumps into Snorri... Thomas is going down, John Snorri is going up. The Icelandic climber told him that he thought he could cross this crevasse. And Rotar thought, well, I've got to see this. And so, having decided to go down, he turned around, joined John Snorri, and went back up to the crevasse. But when they got there, it still looked completely uncrossable to Thomas Rotar. So he wished Snorri good luck, turned back again, and headed back down to Camp 3. On his way down, he passed Ali Sadpara, who was coming up at his own pace. I went down, then I met like Ali, then I met uh, Pablo. He was climbing without oxygen, he was strong like a horse, and also fast like a horse. Rotar remembers arriving back at Camp 3 just as the sun was coming up. He was soon joined the descent with Colin O'Brady and the other climbers, who'd either turned back much sooner or stuck it out overnight in the tents. So now that leaves Ali Sadpara and Sajid, John Snorri and the Chilean Juan Pablo Moore all continuing their push to the summit high up above the camp. But at some point after the crevasse, Sajid, Ali Sadpara's son, had a problem with his breathing gear and so he decided to turn back to Camp 3. And that's where he would wait, alone in a tent, for his father to return from the summit push with John Snorri and Juan Pablo Moore. Colin had told his wife he decided to turn back, but the two knew not to get ahead of themselves. But both of us are like, but let's not celebrate until you're back in base camp. I mean, you're at 24,000 feet. You've got to down climb some of the steepest, craziest terrain ever. Like, we're not home free yet, you know? You've made a decision to turn around, but you're not on, your feet aren't on the ground yet. The mood among those who were left at Camp 3 as the sun came up that morning was good. We are kind of looking around. It's a one hell of a view from 24,000 feet on Cape 2, I'll tell you that much. And so we were kind of admiring where we were, taking pictures. Um, and I went around to each of the tents, which I have a little GoPro video of that I took of going into Noel's tent, which had Noel, Antonio, Temba, uh, the Sherpa Women Climates, Moss, and Bernard all smashed inside of there. And I talked to them just to check in on them, how they're doing. And um, basically said the same thing to every person and I have a recorded of me just being giving people hugs and shaking hands and saying hey we'll see you guys back down in base camp let's clip all the ropes let's get down this mountain safely and you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll celebrate with some warm tea and some soup you know when we get when we get down safe I'll see you guys down there you know in, in a few hours final walk home through the ice fall it's got so much going on in my head just trying to take it all in process it all Get through this ice fall safely. But not everyone made it back. When Ming Tembo and I arrived to High Camp 2, which is where we had slept on the night of February 3rd, and we had still had left some stuff there uh, that we were going to pack up and put in our backpacks to carry down, that's when the radio call uh, came through. Uh, it was in Nepali, so I didn't understand it. Um, but he turned to me and he said, Atanas is dead. He just fell. Bulgarian climber called Atanas Skatov had fallen to his death. We will never know exactly why, but the climbers who were with him think he made an error while clipping from one rope to another. 
but Colin and the other climbers had to continue and as they began to stagger into base camp after a gruelling, deadly one or two day descent there had still been no word from the summit. Ali Sadpara, Juan Pablo Moore and John Snorri had disappeared. The batteries in their location trackers, radios and satellite phones had all perished in the cold. Sajid, Ali's son, had been the last person to see them before he turned back. It was at the bottleneck, a very dangerous section below crumbling ice, above 8,000 metres. Sajid later said that the three men had been strong and confident they could make it. He said they'd also jumped across that crevasse. Arnold Costa had started to get worried at around 2pm on the 5th of February. Of course, we started wondering what was wrong. We started looking to... But the trackers, we could see the trackers, but all the trackers stopped uh, from the cold. So the battery went down. So actually, we had no idea where they were. And yeah, and then Sajid was not in contact with them. We only had contact with Sajid in Camp 3. And of course, that's when the big worrying starts, because we know the weather would change, and if they were not on the way down already, uh, things might go very wrong. As the concern was beginning to set in at base camp, 7,000 metres up, Sajid was still at Camp 3, waiting for his father's return. In the end, it took more than 24 hours for the team at base camp to persuade Sajid to descend back down, by which point few people, including Arnold Costa and Colin, had much hope that the men would be alive. Because the bits of mountain that rise above 8,000 metres are known, as we said, as the death zone, because there's just not enough oxygen up there to sustain life. Brains become hypoxic, hallucinations are common, lungs fail, you're dying just by being there. Climbers have likened it to like running on a treadmill while breathing through a straw. Ali had been up there for a long time now, waiting for his father to return. Actually, you feel very helpless because you, you know that you actually cannot do anything for them. Even if you would send a Sherpa up for rescue, it would take the Sherpa maybe 24 hours to reach Camp 3. And then he doesn't have the supplies to do a search either. So. You know, that to organize like a real search or send real help for them is something that is, will come too late. Days passed and there was no contact from the three men or any sign of them. So after a week of searches, using satellite imagery and Pakistani military aircraft, hope was lost. Finally, on the 18th of February, two weeks after their summit attempt, the three men were officially declared dead. मेरे वालिद अली सतपारा अपने साथियों के साथ जिसमें जॉन स्नोरी आइसलैंड का और जेपी मोहर चिली का this is Sajid Sadpara speaking about his father. He said, My family and I have lost a kind-hearted person and the Pakistani nation has lost a brave and great adventurous individual who is passionate about the Pakistani flag to the point of insanity. Sajid believes that the three men reached the summit and ran into trouble on the way back down. And now there are serious questions swirling about whether this summit attempt should ever have happened. Some people have suggested that seven summit treks didn't do enough to try and search for the missing men on foot. But Costa defended his decision-making on the mountain. Because our Sherpas just came back from Camp 3 and sending our Sherpas would mean certain death for them. So I think that's a very rational decision of Dawa. I totally backed it up. Because you cannot expect from a person who's just been in uh, Camp 3, taking care of people, to go back up immediately without any rest, without any food, without any oxygen, without any supplies, to do a search. What is not going to be a search? It's going to create more problems. It wasn't just seven summits who came under scrutiny. Wild accusations started to fly around. The Nepalese climbers were accused of concealing information about their summit push, including the location of the crevasse. 
Some even implied that they must have faked the whole thing or cut ropes on their descent to stop the other team succeeding. Nims and some of his countrymen posted angry denials on Instagram, showing evidence that the allegations were wrong. As for Seven Summit Treks, its Nepali owners have been defensive about their management of the expedition. They said they'd do it again, but Arnold Costa, who has his own expedition's company when he's not working for Seven Summits, says he has no desire to repeat a commercial expedition up on K2 in winter. I asked him what he thought had really gone wrong. Teamwork, he said, or the lack of it. I think on such a difficult climb, you need to go there as a team and not as a team of individuals. I, and I said that before, I think this is why things went wrong. Even if we would have been 22 people, but we were a team and not all there for our individual like fame, then things would have been different. But in my opinion, everybody joined to be famous, including the Nepalese. And these are the wrong reasons to climb a mountain. In the era of social media, of commercial expeditions where climbers spend as much time on Instagram as they do climbing, Arnold said he thought something fundamental had shifted. Actually, that's a lot of things what's so annoying about this expedition is that uh, ch- times are changing, you know. Uh, people are so busy with updating their social media that, that we as an expedition organizer hardly get a chance to solve our problem. Like, for example, when Altenas fell down, uh, some people already posted on social media before we even know where he was. And of course, if we're not sure what happened yet, we didn't call the family yet. And this seems to happen more and more and more. You don't even have time to organize a rescue, to organize a search, to inform the family before things are on social media already. As for Colin... He flew back to Wyoming to be reunited with his wife. He was shaken by what he'd seen, but relieved to be alive. He was soon back on Instagram, reflecting and plugging his book and sponsors. He was also still in awe of what the Napoli team had achieved. We all went over there, each with our own ambitions, etc. There was still this sort of carrot out there, which is, you know, this world first, the first ascent of K2 in winter. And I don't think there was anybody over there who didn't, you know, think of or dream of being a part of that historic moment. When the Nepalese did it, particularly in the style and way that they did it, all kind of coming together and waiting for each other 10 meters below the summit and, and, and getting to the summit all together uh, in the historic way they did. It was a celebration, you know, and they did it in a way I think that will be remembered for a really long time. Simon spoke to the families of the men who went up K2 this winter and he asked them simply why. Juan Pablo Moore's sister and brother-in-law told me he could only feel truly alive while climbing big mountains. They said that he was only driven by passion. I also got in touch with Shani Benzash. She's a lawyer from Bulgaria and was the girlfriend of Atanas Gatov, who fell to his death during the descent from Camp 3. Shani had made the trek with him to base camp, where she'd also got to know a lot of the other climbers. She collapsed in shock when Arnold Costa told her what had happened to Atanas. In a message to me... Shaney told me she was proud of Atanas for making the right decision to go down. She also gave me a sense of what drives these people, regardless of what national expectation, profits or media profiles can do when life and death decisions have to be made. The world should not accept them as madmen, but as dreamers, she said. And without dreams, there would be no progress. I cannot say this for everyone in this expedition, but in most of them I saw this flame in their eyes. For Atanas, this wasn't a competition. Around a tenth of the people who filled base camp are now dead. A son waited for days for his father to never return. Five families must now wait for the mountain to release their frozen bodies, and it could take decades before they get answers about what happened up there deep in winter on the impossible summit.
Thanks for joining us this week. This episode was produced by Matt Russell and the beautiful original music that you heard was composed by Tom Kinsella. And if you're enjoying this podcast, do give us a five-star review and leave us some feedback. But there's something else that you can do too if you're finding what we do interesting. The newsroom where I work called Tortoise is a membership organisation, which means that you can join us. And I know I say this every week, but it is genuinely a way for you to get more involved in our ideas and our stories and the making of this podcast. Because being a member means that you can take part in our editorial meetings, you can give your input and you can shape the stories that we tell. And of course, I've got a code for you guys, our beloved podcast listeners. So just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. And for a half price discount, you can use the code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A, that's my name, Basha50. Thanks, and I'll see you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com.